welcome to this episode of the world according to Irina Sukarman, our very special uh, series on global politics on the KJ Masterclass Live. Irina Sukarman is a US-based national security and human rights lawyer, as well as a renowned geopolitical analyst. Her writings and commentary have appeared in diverse US and international media and have been translated to over a dozen languages. Every fortnight in the world, according to Irina Superman, we traverse the geopolitical landscape and delve into pressing international issues and gain insights from Irina's expert perspective. Welcome to the show once again, Irina. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. You're welcome. You are welcome. So, Irina, lots of big topics again today. Alexei Navalny's death and so many is making a lot of news. So let's start with that. The funeral, if I understand, is tomorrow. So help us understand who was Alexei Navalny. A lot of people have suddenly woken up to his name. What does he mean? What does his death mean? And what does it mean for Russia? What does it mean for Putin's future? Now, Navalny was a, an opposition member. He, at one point, actually tried to challenge uh, Putin for presidency that did not work out so well. He was accused of various crimes. He was at one point uh, poisoned. He survived the poisoning, ended up receiving treatment in Germany. Uh, but eventually, and against all warnings, returned to Russia where he was immediately arrested, even um, sentenced to a lengthy prison term, which was eventually compounded by other accusations, uh, was sent uh, relocated a couple of times in prisons to further and further prisons in very far areas of Russia. And he was uh, found dead of a, a very common uh, ailment that happens to prisoners, particularly suffering uh, poor conditions of maltreatment. He has um, uh, essentially uh, something like a blood clot. Um, the full extent of, of his health issues has not yet been uh, released, but it was confirmed that that was the cause cause of death. And he 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 was a subject of a documentary by his supporters. He ran an organization that touted itself as being anti-corruption. Ironically, a lot of the people who were working and who were close to Navalny had close ties with Putin's allies, uh, fin uh, bank financiers like the Alpha Bank. Um, and the famous oligarch Mikhail uh, Friedman, uh, who was eventually sanctioned um, in the US and Europe. Um, there were other characters um, around him, uh, like one of his uh, staffers, uh, leaders of his uh, anti-corruption initiative, um, Maria Pevchik, uh, who did her PhD in London and uh, she wrote it on the British ethno uh, ethnic sociology of different ethnicities under uh, Alexander Dugin, who is um, an ideologue who is uh, close to Putin as well and reflects a lot of um, ideolo ideology and philosophy that's shared by the Kremlin and has become uh, a sort of a uh, marking of, uh, of Russia under Putin. So there's a lot of questions about who Navalny really was and what was his values. But the one thing we do know is that uh, he did not appear in any way to be disloyal to the to Russia's national vision. In many respects, he actually 
uh, agreed and supported uh, some of Putin's actions until uh, recently. He supported the war in Ukraine until uh, until you know fairly late in the in the game, so to speak. And uh, he he and he did a lot legitimately to expose the corruption of the Kremlin and the vast wealth accumulated by Putin and his. Uh, close circle of supporters and the oligarchs and essentially a lot of it came from the national treasury from the coffers it was ill begotten and um uh, caused a lot of scandals so that that uh, that was Navalny's claim to fame the documentaries exposing um Putin's uh, uh huge palaces and um assorted other uh lifestyle uh, lifestyle uh, choices that uh challenged the vision of uh, Russia is a modernized egalitarian state uh, in light of a lot of poverty and infrastructural underdevelopment in uh, various parts of the country. Um, and the fact that he died after uh, many trials and tribulations and trumped up charges and likely torture and uh, starvation, uh, you know, raised, raised a chorus of uh, indignation around uh, the Western world in particular the u.s imposed approximately 500 additional sanctions on various russian entities as a result but but the question is why did they wait until navalny died in prison for that to happen when he was in prison for a number of years and uh, none of that took place when those uh, when he was first you know taken into custody or when he was poisoned as so, so many others who criticized putin uh in uh happen and what's the most interesting part is what happened after the mom's death and i'm leaving aside the completely disgraceful episode where uh the uh, the regime did not want to release his body to his mother or blackmailed uh his mother over the circumstances of the burial i'm not even talking about that i'm talking about the new law that putin signed uh almost immediately afterwards which banned anyone from criticizing um russian policies or him personally which i think is the apotheosis of uh, you know of the very corruption and authoritarianism that you know the remnants of russian opposition uh, have been exposing and you can criticize uh these oppositioners for uh, simply being power hungry and looking to forward to get into power themselves of not having clean hands of being very much part of the same milieu and all of these could be very fair criticisms but it doesn't take away from what they're exposing which is the fact that you know the russia has become increasingly closed closed society and its laws mirror those of the most authoritarian regimes in the world at this point right right so what does it mean going forward uh you know, with all these things happening, the world uh, leaders criticizing, and his his uh, wife, Navalny's wife, now is also mainly talking about you know that uh, that that uh, justice will prevail, and his mother also when she was she was there was this media reports that she was apparently given three hours for uh, from the authorities to decide what she wants to do, and finally they seem to have relented. Now the funeral is happening in Moscow tomorrow. What is it is happening in that part of the world? Uh, what is Putin trying to 
achieve here through whatever, uh, you know, there are a lot of questions suddenly coming up. Why couldn't have this been more transparent, especially for him in a, in a, when elections are there, if there is no wrongdoing, why not show to the world much more transparently, especially, you know, with the attempt to reach out to the world media, the world intelligentsia through that, you know, interview just a few days back. So I want to understand the messaging that one gets through these, uh, these happenings. We don't know the truth as we keep on getting different reports and people form their own opinion. Help us understand these parts of these developments in that part of the world. So getting an accurate story out of Russia nowadays is not easy, precisely because the media has been uh, so restricted. In fact, one of the co-founders of a major independent uh, initiative uh, called Memorial, a human rights organization, a Russian one, not a, not a foreign organization, was just thrown in prison uh, after basically calling attention to uh, all these uh, recent circumstances. It, you know, and these events happen amidst a slew of other, um, you know, attacks by Putin against his critics abroad. He put, uh, you know, he, he issued an arrest warrant against the uh, the head of state of Estonia for taking down uh, old Soviet monuments inside Estonia and essentially treating Estonia not as an independent country, but as a potential target for future annexation um, efforts. He's attacked a number of Western critics, including a relatively minor figure from the Facebook Meta company, a spokesperson, for simply going along with the official company policy, which, by the way, are negotiated along with the U.S. government and its and its policy. So, uh, in that respect, you know, U.S. policies, U.S. companies have to follow official U.S. law. So, essentially, for for for, for not violating American law, this guy is put on a wanted list and is charged with the terrorism-related charges and is basically banned from Russia or any country that, you know, that is close to Russia. So this is all has been happening around Navalny. And I think Putin has been trying to balance this tough guy, strongman image who doesn't an image of someone who doesn't care about Western opinion and publicity and you know, human rights related criticism and pressure and appear especially to his supporters and his growing base around the world as someone who just doesn't put up with the Western bullying. But on the other hand, he also realized that he may have overstepped the extent. Like the, he, he had to basically walk back the funeral related arrangements after it turned into a complete scandal because it's just unnecessary petty and cruel it doesn't this is we're talking about a dead body and a burial arrangements this is not an issue of political will or legal you know concerns this is you know a humanitarian gesture that he was denying to somebody's mother and she was not particularly politically involved she you know uh so 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 i think the further a leader or a state becomes authoritarianism, the more they lose grasp with the reality and with the outside perceptions. And the, the more they, they struggle with balancing these internal expectations and this projection of power with the realization that, you know, they're self-isolating essentially and that they're forgetting about basic 
norms that are accepted by most societies as part of a you know social construct and um, sort of a, a, a contractual obligations of being involved in, in, in with other countries in managing their affairs so this is where putin is increasingly losing his grasp you know this is something in his early years he managed very carefully very very um cunningly uh you know i'm not necessarily agreeing with what he was doing but uh, it's hard to deny that he 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 was successful at what he was doing but the more he self-isolated the more his decisions are informed only by people who approve of everything that he does and the more he essentially buys into his own vision of the world without having a check on what actually works and what doesn't and this is what we're seeing today right right if you see from my individual perspective those uh those images of a mother walking in the snow in the uh, uh in the wilderness you know along with her advisor for her son's body you know those images are much more and a lot of the world looks at these images uh things in images rather than what actually the fact will be or what would like to but i want to understand irena is that uh most of the world leaders they were aware of uh navalny being there but suddenly they have woken up is it because of the election year and it sounds very good for them to speak in this voice and 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 not the real voice of democracy or independence or a lot of other things that they claim that they stand for why now is it because of suitability or is it because they have a larger aim in mind well it's actually because of russia's upcoming elections and so the timing between these things navalny dying literally days after uh tucker carlson's interview where tucker carlson if you recall actually called for leaders to you know that said that leaders real leaders have to do a certain amount of killing and by the way he did not specify that he was referring to necessary necessity of sending troops into war or some military operations no he he actually indicated that he was talking about taking out internal enemies assassinations political killings that sort of thing he he basically justified it a few days later navalny is dead and next month we're seeing uh russia's elections and and all the opposition has, has been banned from running and the messaging from the state media in russia is that the country is so unified behind putin that there's no longer a need for elections at all so this might be the last election in russia so i think this is the you know the timing of all these things on the one hand from russia is sending a strong message to the west that russia is pursuing this course and there's nothing anyone can do about it but on the other hand the west is sending the message and saying you know what you know it's bad enough that you've been imprisoning all these people you know you've had all these people you know who died under highly suspicious circumstances those but this guy died in your prison and he died at a relatively young age under after being treated horribly so you know whether or not it was an ordered hit or just a death arising from these circumstances the blame lies on you and you're running with this death right before your own election so you know what, what this is nothing but state terror in action that's that's what they're calling out yes absolutely you're correct that it's hypocritical to rely on just this one incident where the when there's been a string of political assassinations disappearances 
violence, arrests, and so forth. And most of them, you know, were received relatively muted reaction, except for the incidents that uh, that occurred on Western soil. Uh, but but basically, the Navalny death is being treated as a, as a culmination, the last straw that broke the patience of the Western world with making excuses, justifications, or attempting to sort of, you know, uh, stay silent and, you know, look the other way on other issues. So it's not that Navalny is being treated as some sort of a, an exceptional figure. It's that his death is basically has been treated by the regime, by the Kremlin, in such a blatantly brazen way, in such a in such a brazen challenge to the West that there is no choice but to react, especially since this is right before the elections and this is like essentially undermines any credibility in in Russia's election um, uh, coming up and the legitimacy of the leadership, therefore. Right, right. And, and for and forgetting the controversy around his death for a bit, in terms of Navalny himself, how will he be remembered as, as someone fighting for, for a cause? He could have easily stayed back in Germany, gone back anywhere, but he went back to Russia knowing the difficult times ahead for himself. So who will the, he be remembered as? Uh, because in his death, a lot of now talks are happening. Even those people who would not have known him now know him almost like a, coming out some as some sort of a icon of, you know, important voice. And also his wife now is speaking out openly and it is it will continue to make news in the days to come. Well, uh, you know, there's been, you know, a, a host of uh, articles and hagiographies praising Navalny to uh, no end as an exceptionally courageous figure who dared to challenge the state and didn't break in light of all these uh, mistreatments and poisonings and so forth. Personally, I think this uh, the story is more complicated. I believe that Navalny was misled, manipulated into coming back um, to Russia, maybe with false hopes and promises, maybe by threatening uh, his family in Germany because, uh, you know, Russia recently is thought to be responsible for the death of a defector uh, in Spain. It's in Europe, European soil, and it has previously attempted uh, to assassinate uh, various individuals in the UK, in the United States, and so forth. Um, so it's not part of the question that they may have threatened his wife and his family. They may have promised him uh, some sort of a you know compromise. Who knows? I don't believe that he thought that he would meet the end that he did when he came. That would have been a very reckless decision, not necessarily courageous, because it would not accomplish anything other than get him killed. And it certainly didn't stop Putin or put an end to what Russia is doing or uh, turn the Western policies by itself. I think, you know, the war in Ukraine did much more than the death of any of the internal dissidents and opposition members. I think those things are never the the, the ultimate deciding uh, factor. It's always foreign policy and security that decides um, the policies, not individual human rights cases. Right, right, Irina. Russia is in a lot of news. Putin is also in a lot of news. As we talked about Navalny, you also mentioned about uh, about the uh, assassination of a Russian defector in Spain. 
and, and so all these things are happening and now this whole threat you know alleged threat uh, to moldova about transnistria what's happening there what's a, what should the world do another front opening up you know ukraine israel and now this one how does it look like what is this issue all about now moldova the transnistria is a region of moldova that's been occupied by russia for a very long time even before this recent ukraine um uh attack and uh uh, there has been an effort to rile up separatism there, just as it happened in Crimea, uh, in uh, in the Donbas region, um, and in other areas, uh, parts of uh, parts of uh, Georgia, and so forth. Uh, but now, what's changed is there's an effort now to um, induce not only an occupation but a full annexation of that area and possibly a political coup inside moldova that was allegedly thwarted after a failed effort and who knows there likely are to be repeated efforts the issue is not fully resolved despite the fact that the immediate threat has appeared to has appeared to have subsided for the time being so this is an ongoing development but it is to be expected because if Russia is met with any success anywhere, politically and militarily, it makes sense for it to push further in the pursuit of its geopolitical agenda. Why not? If it already has the forces on the ground, if it does not require significant expenditures and effort, and if there's no serious challenge or pushback from everyone else, why should it not continue to do what it's doing? And that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing Russia advancing in Ukraine in light of the political controversy over humanitarian aid in the US and in light of Europe simply not being able to keep up with the needs. And um, so now that Russia feels it has a path to, if not a complete victory, then some gains in Ukraine, it can also, it feels emboldened to pursue its interests in other areas where it already has some hold. Right, right. Moldova is, uh borders ukraine and ukraine is now you know waiting for uh, a lot of support from the western world from the us and with the change in government trump has already made his stance clear let's see what happens in that but ukraine is facing uh, how do you say is it a setback or it because it has abandoned Advit, Ad, Avdiv, Divka, if i'm sorry if i'm not pronouncing Avdiv, it very clear. Yes. yeah and 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 then there is this ascension talks, both Moldova and Ukraine. And amidst all these things, in one of the recent uh, speeches, uh, Zelensky talks, talked about 30,000 deaths. I don't know how far that figure is correct and all, but this was the first time, if I understand, they mentioned about these number of deaths. This is this is very alarming. We have not don't know about the Russian figures, but help us understand what is happening in on the Ukraine front. How should the world look at it well ukraine deaths are probably much higher than thirty-one thousand. but but you know the russian deaths are also quite significant and the latest estimates from pentagon uh put them above four hundred thousand. and it, it's hard to have an exact count but it seems reasonable given the waves of mobilization that we have seen the replacement gives us some ideas about what troops have been lost even if russia is not admitting the exact count and even if it's, there's no possibility of counting all the bodies yet by even by ukraine it, it, it will take a long time to um uh to get the evidence of the exact losses uh we know that um 
Russia, even with Ukraine facing these extreme challenges related to shortage of ammo and other advanced ammunition and advanced weapons and related to also um, uh, limitations, uh, lack of rotation of troops and uh, kind of um, this uh, exhaustion, simple exhaustion of the troops. Uh, Russia has a difficult time ahead. It's uh, the despite the fact that uh, Ukraine has been um, stymied by this shortage of ammo, it has been using other types of weapons efficiently and destroy and causing significant financial losses to Russia and a lot of its very expensive in equipment and uh, jet planes and other forces that are difficult to replace quickly. Uh, Russia is receiving some aid from North Korea, from Iran, but all of these things are, you know, don't make up for the very heavy, for the tanks, for the jets, for the vessels that are being uh, sunk and destroyed. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think Russia has a very difficult path to victory. I think Ukraine will try to hold off as long as possible while Europe and other countries figure out how to compensate for the U.S. aid. And U.S. still has options. Um, it has still has some weapons in the pipeline that are set to be delivered. The F-16 uh, training is almost complete. Um, and, you know, President Biden may choose to decide if there is a government shutdown, for instance, to release some of the weapons that he has, the you know, the legal power to give to Ukraine without, uh, without congressional authorization uh, approval. So we'll see what happens. I think he, he's been avoiding that, that to avoid controversy in an election year. But if the situation is as dire as it uh, appears to be heading, he may he may have to do that. So we will see what happens. But so far, Ukraine is warning about a potential Russian offensive uh, around May. Right, right. And Irina, I mean, I mean, all these talks, there was this news suddenly. I was also surprised to read that some Indians were also, you know, these were reports that they were fighting. Actually, the main uh, main story came out that actually they were misled by some of the agents and they landed up, you know, at the battlefront. How do you look at this uh, this particular thing in that? Now, now they have been released as part of the latest news that I read. But how do you look at this part? Why is Russia hiring uh, these people or from, I'm sure there might be more people every, uh, from other places in the world. What is happening in uh, in this regard? Well, here's the thing. Russia, first of all, Russia is suffering very heavy losses and many of its best fighters have already been killed off. So, yes, it can always replenish its arsenal with an endless stream of random people. But a lot of people are, you know, simply fleeing the country as refugees. They don't want to fight. They don't want to enlist in the army. Uh, Russia has been trying to throw in various ethnic minorities from peripheral areas but even those people are not enough it's just be, you know it's been using all these fighters as cannon fodder it's been recruiting mercenaries it's been doing everything possible but a lot of these things just don't work out well because what happens when you take people from different international militaries who don't speak russian or ukrainian or even english necessarily in some cases who 
come from a completely different military background who've never had to train with Russian forces. And it, it makes for very difficult fighting. It has tried to recruit Syrians. Syrians very quickly found themselves uh, uh, met with exceptional cold temperatures in the middle of last winter and were either heavily wounded or just simply fled. It was not the climate in which they were used to fighting. Not to mention most of them did not speak a word of Russian and found it very difficult to integrate. This is the problem when, you know, you bring in mercenaries from countries that don't share your language and military culture. With India, I mean, I think Russia is just desperate to find anyone and, and even hires people under false pretenses so they don't have to pay them much. And, you know, they find poor people, probably promise them money, tells them that they're for some, you know, campaign somewhere they, they even maybe even tell them that they're going to some other place that's not ukraine for some other reason and uh they end up in situations quite to their surprise and that's not a, this is exactly what happened with the russian soldiers in the very beginning they didn't even know where they were going and they thought they were going for training exercises not for war so imagine being in the middle of some another country that you don't know very well uh, you know, people they speak a different dialect, and uh, you know, you just find yourself surprising. You, you know, you thought go kill people when you thought you were just there for training. Uh, so this is, you know, this is a shock, and uh, you know, this is not a good way to manage anyone because if someone is misled into a war effort, they are not going to be prepared, and they're not going to be, uh, you know, to have the morale to fight, and they're not going to to want to be there. So. I think Russia has created its own problems with with such efforts. It's just not honest, and it's not. It's obviously and uh, leading to completely absurd situations. Right, right. Talking of Indian citizens in Russia, talking. Let's move on to in you know farmer protests in India. But it's not about just India. A lot of farmer protests are happening all across the world. Uh, Netherlands. Uh, Poland, France, all those images are coming out into, you know, uh, even even to India. And Indian farmers are also, they have their own, at least they have a particular demand. So why is this a lot of farmer protests are happening? Are they linked or are they all separately happening in their own way? Indian farmers have their own demand about MSP. The government has promised that. Let's see how what happens there. That, Tell us about the other places. Is it linked? Is India also linked in some manner? Help us understand all this. So, look, the agricultural sector will always has its own economic interests and goals. And it's always been the case all over the world. Um, you know, in the United States, the, the, the farmers have their own issues. The U.S. government has tried to give them subsidies that's it's always a sector that's important central to the economy but at the same time is seen as less um economically stable than for instance an industry and there's always cycles to you know and environmental factors and all sorts of other geopolitical factors so so it's always a major sector that's always has a lot of ability to pressure governments but at the same time it also it also has its own vulnerabilities the farmers in all of these places have legitimate grievances they, and the, those grievances are not the same in all of the places for instance in netherlands the farmers you know were concerned about exceptionally strict esg requirements by the government and the threats to confiscate lands towards you know 
you know, non non food producing goals, for instance, in Poland, uh, the farmers, uh, you know, were, con were concerned about the export, the import of foreign uh, grain during a time of economic crisis and uh, essentially uh, being put out of business by neighboring countries. Um, all of this, all of these issues and concerns are real. They're not all identical because every country has its own economic situations. Obviously, uh, the farmers in Poland, farmers in Netherlands, and farmers in India or France all have completely different circumstances. What, however, unites them all is the fact that you know other state actors exploit these very legitimate concerns and the government response or non-response to them to create this optics of unity of purpose which does not necessarily exist because all of these people as i said face completely different specific economic circumstances and turn it into this wave of economic warfare against governments and create this illusion of a mass movement among people who normally would not coordinate because they would have very little in common and would have you know and would have other than being farmers and belonging to the same sector they would not have the same economic demands or concerns and you know and um, it's very difficult to coordinate uh, these things, unless you are politically involved, and not not all of these farmers are, you know, political activists. Most of them are just farmers. Uh, so, but but people who know what they're doing, and usually in many cases it's actually Russia, in some cases China, we are seeing join in on some of these campaigns. They exploit these grievances. They create these optics. They create the coordination element that would not normally exist, and they utilize it. To advance their own goals that have nothing to do with those farmers and they exploit the farmers and they cause them problems actually and they exacerbate tensions between the governments and the farmers instead of helping resolve the issues amicably and we are seeing with the polish farmers that started as a you know a very normal you know concern about managing flows of grain into the country now we're seeing farmers actually block borders with ukraine violate engaging acts of civil disobedience cause problems you know in the wartime cause security issues and come out with communist flags and all sorts of propaganda that would were not initially there they were not part of the initial wave of concerns and there's a an extremist political party involved in organizing those farmers in poland it's a polish party but it has links to russia it's a uh, hard right-wing, you know, extreme fringe right-wing, not any of the mainstream political parties. But they've, uh, you know, so Russia is kind of behind the scenes operating through these local proxies. So if I had to guess, I would say that there is the same situation in every one of those countries, that there are legitimate concerns. Somebody, some political group finds out that, you know, they analyze the situation, they figure out what are these people really concerned about, and then they basically use it to try to create, a, you know, a dispute, and they say, oh, well, we're all united around the world. But who, you know, 
all these people don't even speak the same language. So what really unites them is like communists, international communists who were saying all the workers of the world unite. Now they're saying all the farmers of the world unite. I mean, it's a very familiar tactic if you look at it this way. That doesn't mean that those people don't deserve to have their, you know, day in, um, you know, if not in court or at the parliament or wherever they have their grievances. They absolutely need to be uh, heard. The problem is when you have foreign entities intervening it gives governments an excuse not to deal with the real problem this you know so or else they feel terrorized and they don't want to look like they're submitting to foreign influence or to demands by groups so they kind of dismiss and it only polarizes and exacerbates this issue which is why it's very important to be to be smart to have meetings but to also seek out all these foreign you know or the you know foreign slash domestic partner, political partnerships that are infiltrating these movements and get them out of the picture and, and deal directly with the locals and show a very kind of forward way of thinking and, and listen to the people and listen to their concerns and, and try to not let third parties get involved in any way. Absolutely, absolutely. People have to be very smart, even those who are protesting because wherever people see numbers, a lot of vested interests try to put in their own points, agenda into the real agenda that is, uh, you know, that people are demanding. Uh, there is so much to understand, as I said. And what do we understand, make, understand of something that's happening in our neighborhood about Pakistan? What is happening about what should we make sense of this? Somebody wins, but the government uh, is being made by someone else. But does this show that military is, you know, lost its grip out of power and in the coming days it will be, uh, they will have to rethink about their own strategy. How does this, uh, you know, this whole thing in Pakistan look to you and the future as well? This is what happens when you put the political process above the actual values. What I mean by that is that, you know, yes, Pakistan has this tradition of elections. But it has never at any point had a strong uh, civil society, independent civil society. It has not, does not have a, a culture or political culture of law and order. And it is, certainly doesn't have any liberalism, you know, to speak of. We see that from the, from the fact that every single prime minister in that, since the country's independence ended up in prison. For corruption or some other reasons either because they were actually corrupt or because the the parties framed them as being corrupt regardless of that this is not a normal you know transition of power the fact that the military infiltrates most economic institutions and has a central hold on the economy certainly doesn't help matters the fact that you have you know uh, these courts you know making these rulings on extreme religious grounds against people from you know you have christians being sentenced to death on a regular uh, basis and then somebody else has to intervene and overrule it to avoid a major international scandal it's it's not it's not a, it's not really a democracy in the true sense of the world you know and the fact that we're talking about that you know any democracy without talking about the underlying institutions makes it all kind of a farce and in this election, we are seeing there are no, you know, there there may be victims, but they're not necessarily um, any good 
good parties to root for. Iman Khan may be in the right in the sense that he is being deliberately excluded from the political process and likely some of the charges against him are trumped up. But then again, it's very hard to say because there's such a tradition of corruption across all these people that maybe the entire parliament should be in prison for corruption. Who knows? The other thing is, you know, Imran Khan is a populist. He has been using social media effectively, but, uh, you know, social media is not just about Imran Khan and his party. It, you know, the shutdown of these social media sites has also deprived people of access to basic information about elections, regardless of who they are voting for. Then you have this coalition excluding Imran Khan's party, and then that in itself is not necessarily anything new. This is the challenge to any parliamentary system. But but then you have major people openly admitting to election rigging and with no consequences whatsoever. So that's obviously, you know, it's hard to, you know, it, it looks bad and it looks disruptive. And when you get to some point of corruption, you just stop being good at what you do. No matter how far you've gotten with power, as the military in Pakistan has, after all, once, you know, after decades in power, after decades of, you know, corrupt processes, you can no longer hide who, you know, that you don't necessarily care about following the law. So you become bad at it and something, someone with a new approach comes and he able, is able to expo expose those flaws. And that, by the way, doesn't think that I, um, doesn't, don't take it, uh, don't take it to mean that I support what Imran Khan was doing in any way. Uh, but I think he was pretty open about what he was doing and who he was supporting. He did not pretend to be pro-Western when he was uh, openly quoting China and Russia. But the military, while it claims to want to be closer to the United States and to Saudi Arabia and so forth, is very much benefiting from Imran Khan's policies and from the decisions made during his uh, his. Um, stay in power and from the same uh, investments by China, it hasn't rejected any of those things. It has just tried to downplay them to avoid losing support elsewhere. So all of that is now coming to the surface. And I think a lot of the support for Imran Khan is not because it's not only because he, you know, knows how to manipulate social media and he's, you know, a famous uh, uh, cricketer. I think, um, cricket player. I think it's also because people are just sick of, you know, of corruption, and this is a protest world. They may not like what he actually stands for, but they see no other alternative, and there's certainly no classical liberal, you know, person to challenge the entire thing in a healthy way. There is no healthy alternative. So it's either supporting the way things always were, or supporting a disruptor, even if that disruptor is damaging in many ways. And we are heading into a very dangerous situation where there's a great potential for civil unrest over this matter, if it's not resolved intelligently, potential for extremists, uh, you know, um, uh, to, to exploit this to cause security problems. And, you know, it may backfire across the region. Right, right. A lot of ha things happening in this part of the world and a lot of things happening in Europe. Let's revisit Europe once again, the Munich Security Conference. Uh, tell us about the highlights and conclusions. Does it mean, what does it mean for people like us in this part of the world and even for that part of the world? So, so you know, there were four main 
issues on the Europe, European Union's geopolitical agenda. One was to figure out how to support Ukraine more and faster, and I'll get to that in a moment. Second was to end, you know, humanitarian uh, problems in Gaza and to implement the two-state solution. The third was to improve EU's relations with the so-called Global South. And fourth, uh, you know, to strengthen defense and security uh, issues inside the European U Union, as well as assorted bilateral understandings. And of course, you know, Russia was very big on the agenda in general, not just pertaining to Ukraine and China as related to that, um, all of these issues. But uh, frankly, none of that was, you know, defined very well. Germany and France are now sort of competing over the best way to support Ukraine. France is projecting, you know, has suggested sending NATO troops on the ground. Germany and Poland rejected that and accused France of not providing enough actual weapons to Ukraine. So you have this internal split regarding Gaza and Israel. I mean, it's just that's not even realistic because you have had the institution tests with providing humanitarian aid that we just defunded by many of these countries for uh, being linked to terrorism. And on the other hand, you have the Palestinians who among themselves cannot de decide over, they cannot agree on a single state vision. The entire West Bank, you know, Ramallah-based government just resigned. Uh, Hamas refuses to even consider a two-state solution. It refuses to acknowledge Israel as a neighboring state. So this is not a realistic proposal. I don't think it's even a realistic. It shouldn't have been in a, on the agenda in that in that structured in that particular way. I think. Um, and then the, talking about strengthening relations with the global south, all of that is well and good. But again, I think the European Union, as well as the United States, for that matter, and many of the other Western countries are going about it, you know, U US is finally starting to get that just symbolic promises are not going to suffice, but it has yet to fully invest into any concrete policy with anyone, with Africa, with India, it's going a little bit better because they're finally technology exchanges and not just talks about it. There's a potential for weapon cells and and things like that but with everybody else things are still you know on very much limited to security cooperation and some climate change initiatives there is no real strategy for any of these regions uh and finally regarding strengthening defense and security europe is waking up to the fact that they need to have defense budget they are starting a defense initiative in the red sea but it's not really effective it doesn't do anything it's separate from the us and the uk effort it's uh, actually splitting the allies in some ways so it's actually the opposite uh is effective of effective and it's uh sending a bad signal to the uh, purported adversaries um so uh, to be frank, I think uh, while the issues that were outlined were important and should be discussed, the way the discussion goes just shows how much the West is kind of missing the forest for the trees and completely on a conceptual level misunderstands the problems it's facing. Right, right. But who is asking who to uh, 
get into this phone hacking and spying on European Parliament Defense Committee members. Help us understand this. What do they want to achieve? Is it? Do you think it's true? It's it's false. There are news reports about this. Well, you know, let's be clear. We've had a whole series of reports alleging very, you know, similar allegations now for years. It's all started with Snowden. There's no doubt that there's some level of cyber snooping, even among uh, so-called allies, you know, among Western states and others. There's always intelligence gathering. And quite frankly, when, when you have a circumstance where some members of those committees um are implicated in uh dealings with controversial figures it's natural that they are going to be um surveilled by somebody somewhere as part of the process of trying to understand the interactions with those you know controversial figures be the russians chinese iranians north north koreans or anyone else so uh so there are legitimate reasons for people to be surveilled at any point in time so that's the first factor that we have to uh look at uh but then there is another issue which is that the reports of the snooping are not really well supported they come from the very same organizations that have made these accusations against their favorite targets while covering up chinese uh, commercial spyware and um russian commercial spy spyware like the uh kaspersky company so it's hard to take these reports very seriously when there is no clear evidence of who is doing it to whom why and how and when these reports lack technical substantiation and but have all the reasons in the world to kind of try to sow disagreements among european countries at the time when polarization is at an all-time high as it is and when russia is looking for nothing more than to find uh disunity china is very much doing the same thing and all these powers are united are united uh, by a goal to exploit any possible divisions right right irina now one last topic you know it's a very uh difficult thing that is us is facing is that on in their skies they again see a chinese balloon and on the ground, they are seeing uh, a, chi a Chinese panda. Panda diplomacy happening. And in the sky, this balloon balloon thing happening. Help us understand what is this panda diplomacy all about? What should we make out of this Chinese balloon apparently in, uh, 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 in the US skies? Uh, what is happening actually in that part of the world? So Pentagon has blamed the latest balloon on a hobbyist without any substantiation, even though this balloon hovered over military bases and basically pursued the same route across the entire country as the previous Chinese spy balloon that we all know about. I think they are trying to avoid a confrontation with China, uh, even after a slew of recent incidents that involved U.S. Coast Guard boarding Chinese ships, numerous spy balloons and confrontations around Taiwan area and all sorts of belligerent um, gestures. But, you know, there's been efforts to fight, to uh, join a conversation on fentanyl reduction, on, get, on putting pressure on China to stop the flow of drugs into the United States through Mexico and so forth. So I believe that 
the administration is looking is deliberately turning a blind eye on very obvious you know spy operations because they don't want a bigger political problem at the moment even as china by the way is sending you know guard uh, vessels into allegedly into their navy into the middle east into the gulf of Aden. on the other hand part of diplomacy while many people think it's a cute way to build a cultural diplo- diplomatic relations between people uh, it's actually a highly manipulative uh, ta- uh, uh, way of controlling by, by china which has uh, exercised a, a monopoly on panda ownership and it's legally legally um essentially it's a legal policy that that's been in place for many years they used to give panda pandas as gifts to zoos but since the 80s they only lent them on lease to the countries with whom they deemed to have important diplomatic and political relations and at the height of the recent crisis on a political level the chinese removed those pandas so you would think why are they punishing the american people for the decisions made by you know politicians who are dealing with securities average americans even if they vote for these people don't vote for them every day they vote them once every two to four years six years in some cases and most of them don't you know don't really care one way or the other and they're not involved in politics at all so but this is a way to pressure to manipulate and to send a signal that the political actions by the u.s government are tied also to people to people relations and both will get worse if the u.s basically does not act in a way that garners the um beijing's approval and now that they see that um u.s is kind of taking a step back from the pressure they are talking about restoring this panda diplomatic effort it's a carrot and stick approach and it's very very cynical in many ways right right u.s is facing a lot of uh, hard choices and different aspects whether it's the balloon or even in the middle east because their stand is different netanyahu has uh, spelled out his uh, you know vision for gaza governance and and uss is already facing issues with regards to ukraine with all those things you know in so many hands and it is trying it can't do anything about the us balloon but it is trying to balance it out with new relationships in different parts of the world including with you uh, you know trying to get uh, india on its sides that's the impression you know the world is getting how how would you have acted if you were the us president uh, irina uh, how would you have handled it? Because it's a lot to handle at this point in time for the U.S. Well, you know, a lot of these crises are linked together because the coalition of actors behind them is, you know, the same countries working together, you know. Uh, so you, you can't view them as completely separate problems. That's, that, that's uh, first of all. Second, showing weakness anywhere means, you know, accepting weakness everywhere. And so both friends and enemies will act accordingly, draw lessons and look either to exploit and to, or to form ties with somebody else who is stronger. That's just that's just a basic lesson. So I think the Biden administration needs to kind of review its general approach to everybody at the same time.
Third, you're trying to influence somebody, particularly if somebody is strong and has their own interests, you need to bring something to the table. You can't either beg or threaten with nothing to show for it. You need to have a concrete proposal, a strategy in place, and you have to understand that it's going to take time to work out. It's not going to happen overnight. You have to be patient and you have to work with it and you have to build trust with smaller gestures until they build up into something substantial and this is where they've been struggling with i think with india they are sort of on the right path but i don't think they're still quite getting you know this whole balancing thing and what that actually means and actually prime minister modi made a very clear message recently he said to the us you should be with us because china is a bully and i think india made its interest quite clear to anyone who's actually listening there's been a lot of concern. Well, is India with us or without, uh, you know, against us? They joined BRICS. They have a lot of, you know, Russian influence internally. I think that message was very clear. Where it matters, India absolutely wants to be closer to the West. So let's pursue it on the terms that we can at the moment. There is an opportunity. So I think that's where we should be looking at. And, and it could be leveraged in, in support in other areas, such as the Middle East. You know there are different ways to look at any problems so some looked at the g20 summit and looked at it and said well us is isolated on the question of israel and gaza because us is the only one you know not abstaining or directly voting in support and so on and so forth i say look at it differently look you have an opportunity to gain an ally and you have an opportunity to gain support in this and this area okay maybe india is not ready to vote with the us and the united nations but maybe there could be an alternative mediator uh, with more credibility than for instance Qatar, that has failed to produce any good results uh maybe they could be brought in to assist with the humanitarian aid distributions because they're not tied to terrorist organizations and the, and therefore they will give the aid to the uh, to the people on the ground and you know maybe they could be used as peacekeepers to ensure that the uh, terrorist organizations don't take away the aid afterwards you know so there are different ways of engaging with people that's in between zero and a hundred percent and i think us you know if it wants to not be seen as isolated it has opportunities it doesn't not everybody is an enemy and looking at it as a zero-sum game looking at diplomacy as a zero-sum game is a big mistake you have to look where your potential allies are and meet them there or meet them halfway there and and then push them to do more absolutely absolutely thanks for making say making us understand all these difficult things and as we continue forward you will continue uh, the world continues to move forward uh you will i'm sure every second week we'll come back with irena superman to make sense of all the things that has been happening in the last two weeks thank this, you so much. A, with this it's a wrap on this very special edition of the world according to irena superman on the kj masterclass live thank you so thank much you. indeed for joining us mm -hmm. Thank you.